This episode is a recording of Father Graby's Christmas talk at one of our in-person gatherings in New York City, a series of events we call Higher Word Evenings. These talks are designed to give a different spin on what we usually hear or think we know, and to provide something deeper to pursue. In this talk, we look at an overlooked pairing, Christmas and the Feast of St. Stephen, and what the church is trying to teach us. To learn how to attend these in-person events or get on our mailing list, please reach out to us through social media. Thank you to Nick and friends, both roommates and fellow musicians. Um, this is really an, an overwhelming, beautiful evening. I feel like I'm in a scene in a Truman Capote novel that's waiting to be written. Um, <laughs> but here we are. Uh, by way of background, uh, these evenings started as a way to kind of flip the script, if you will, to give a different spin on what we usually hear or think we know. And the topics that we've covered over the past year, from marriage to friendship to sexuality to the apostles, have all kind of tried to achieve that goal to say, all right, take everything you've heard and been taught and let's maybe take you out of your comfort zone to to give you something deeper to chew on and pursue. And that's what I would like to do this evening. And this won't be a long talk, I, I, I promise. And I would like some time for questions or, or discussion. But to, you know, we're, we're in now, you know, going to the second week of December, season of Advent, obviously getting ready for Christmas, um, to maybe look at it a little differently, to go a little deeper, and maybe come away with something to think about. Or if nothing else, some fun facts you can use at a cocktail party. All right. <laughs> so um, what you saw in the trailer kind of sets the scene. There are these couplings in the Catholic calendar that can seem odd, that can induce a certain religious whiplash. All right. What comes to mind? All Saints Day, November 1st, right? We, it's this glorious celebration of, of all the souls in heaven, those who've made it, this triumphant feast. And then the next day is All Souls Day. It's, it's very somber and, and mournful where we pray for the souls in purgatory, though those who are still on their way. And although the tone is radically different, there's a complementarity there, right? The, the ones who have made it remind us to pray for the ones who haven't made it yet. They, they go together in, in a very beautiful pairing. Another one that comes to mind is Mardi Gras, which comes from the Catholic Church, right? The day before Ash Wednesday. We go from this indulgence, right, where we, we kind of pig out in a way. Um, we, we enjoy all the things that we're going to give up for Lent. And then that, that gives way on Ash Wednesday to a day of, of incredible penance, Right, the beginning of the penitential season. And that's a very Catholic pairing. Catholicism is all about these seeming paradoxes, right? God and man, virgin and mother, one and three. We feast and we fast. We play hard and we pray hard. And I think one of the overlooked 
parents' juxtapositions is what was mentioned in the trailer there. At Christmas Day, December 25th, right. it's probably the Catholic feast that, that most of the world celebrates, even if they don't have any actual faith, even if they don't actually believe that God was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. But the next day, people give very scant attention to. It's the Feast of St. Stephen, who was the first martyr. And as you heard in the trailer, that, that's not a coincidence. That's not an accident. The church knows exactly what she's doing, right? We've been at this for 2,000 years. There's something that the church is trying to tell us by following Christmas Day at the Feast of St. Stephen. St. Stephen, just by way of background, was an early follower of Christ. We read in the Acts of the Apostles, shortly after the resurrection, he, he was stoned to death for his belief in, in Jesus. So, so why is that? Why are we going from, you know, this lovely feast of, of the baby and all that to, to this rather disturbing feast, right? The first one who ever died for Jesus Christ. To understand what's going on here, we need to backtrack a little bit and see that from the very beginning, everything about Christmas is pointing to the cross. We cannot fully appreciate the crib if we don't understand how it leads us to the cross. And the parallels are striking. In both scenarios, Jesus rests upon a bed of wood, right? the wood of, of the manger, the wood of the cross. In both scenarios, he stretches out his hands. We, we, we see the, you know, the lovely baby reaching out his hands. That's a foreshadowing of when he would unwittingly stretch out his hands in the ultimate act of salvation. In both cases, his mother is there, and she wraps his body. She holds his body, she wraps his body, first in swaddling clothes, and then in a burial shroud. When we read that Jesus is laid in a manger, a manger is, is a feeding trough. It's where the animals come to eat their hay. The message is there from the beginning. I, I, I have come to be your food. What precedes Jesus' death on the cross, but the Last Supper, the gift of himself in the Eucharist. When he gives himself to us in the most complete way to be our food, to be our nourishment under the appearance of bread. And again, all the clues are there from the beginning. Where is Jesus born? Bethlehem. The word Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread. He's come to be our food, our nourishment. And all of creation is wrapped up in both of these events. There's a reason in every nativity scene, you have the ox and the ass. God's, even, even his, his lower creatures are part of this. It's a universal act of redemption. And we see this played out even more dramatically when it reaches its fulfillment on the cross. What, what, what is nature's response? If you recall the gospel accounts, anyone want to venture a guess? What's, what's the response of nature when Jesus dies? 
The sun's blotted out. The sun's blotted out, right? It's like the sun itself dares not shed its light on this dark moment. Unless there be any doubt as to what I'm, what I'm saying, but, but but this 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 overarching plan. When Jesus appears in his trial before Pontius Pilate, who's questioning him, you know, are are you are you the king of the Jews? He says, Do you not know I have the power to kill you, the power to crucify you? And Jesus says to him, For this I was born. For this I came into the world. Like, this, is, this, this is not some cosmic accident. This isn't everything went wrong. This is the plan all along. This is why I was born as a baby in Bethlehem, because I knew it would lead to this, to this act of saving the world. And this is the great paradox that Jesus in his birth, in his incarnation, imitated us, imitates us. He still has his human nature. He still has his human body, his human soul. That wasn't just a passing costume that he put on and took off. He, he still has his human body in heaven. He imitated us. He took on our humanity. And in response, we are called to imitate him, to take on his divinity. And how do we do that? Well, by dying to ourselves, dying to our fallen nature so that we can put, as St. Paul says, to put on Christ. As Jesus put on our humanity, we return the favor by, by putting on Christ, becoming like him. And no one does that in a more perfect and complete and radical way than the martyrs, right? When we talk about dying to ourselves, no, no one did that more than the martyrs did. They, they literally died for Jesus Christ. You and I are li not likely to face martyrdom. We're not likely to die for our faith. But we are still called to make that gift of self, to, to strip off the fallen nature that we have, right? To, to take off our, our sinful ways and, and to more and more put on Christ, to live for him the way the martyrs did in that highest way. And that's why the death of a saint is called in Latin their dies natalis, their birthday, the day they're born into true life in heaven. Think about that. That's a really profound thought. Their true birthday is not when they're born here on earth. That, that's a past, this life on earth where we're, we're, we're passing through, right? We're, we're, we're connecting flights, all right? No one wants to stay in the airport. We're waiting to get to, you know, paradise, literally. And so when the saints die, when the martyrs shed their blood, that's the day of their death is their feast day. It's celebrated. Now they are born into real life, the life that we were made for all along. And that gives a whole different meaning to what the birth of Jesus is about, because the church is impressing upon us. If you want to know what this birth really means, Look to St. Stephen, because he shows you, if you follow this baby, if you love this baby, 
then be ready to give your life for him. Be ready to put on Christ, to live for him, to be born into the eternal life that he died so that you could live for. And that calls us to something very deeper in this season of Advent. It's saying, yes, all the sentimentality and, 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 and the loveliness of this season is, is beautiful, and, and I will be the last one to cast aspersions upon it. Right? We should celebrate this. Of course, it's ours. But the church is also saying to us, don't miss the deeper point. If you really love that baby, follow him to the end. Because he doesn't stay a baby in that crib. He dies for you on the cross and rises so that you can be born with him. And then we start to see that all the trappings of Christmas are really much deeper than we often give them credit for. You know, wh- wh- why is the color red the color of Christmas? Not because of Santa Claus. Today's the Feast of St. Nicholas, right? Um, St. Nicholas, you know, was a bishop, fine. Um, I, I, I don't mean that in a flippant way. I, 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 I think he's been, you know, sort of overtaken by, by the commercialization. We associate, we associate red with Christmas because it's the color of martyrs. It's, it's, it's reinforcing that point. This is, this is a martyr's feast day. If we really want to understand Christmas, it, it's about dying to ourselves, symbolically shedding our blood for the one who, who died for us, who was born for us. The same is true with, with the Christmas tree, right? And I mentioned at the beginning of these remarks that parallel between the crib and the cross, right? That's what the Christmas tree reminds us of. It's one of those flash words in our faith that whenever we see it, we say, okay, there, there's a meaning here. There, there's a context here. It recalls the fall of man on the tree in, the, in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, but also the cross, which is the tree of life. That's why we have the Christmas tree. There are beautiful uh, instrumental interlude there played, O Tannenbaum, O Christmas tree, right? That evergreen tree, the tree that never dies, because that's what the cross is. It's the tree that gives life, and we adorn it and decorate it because it was decorated with the saving blood of Jesus Christ. And that gives a whole deeper meaning to everything that we do during this season. And it impresses upon us God's love for us, the way he died to himself, right? Kind of kind of hiding his divinity, taking on our human nature so that we could fall in love with him and not be afraid to take on his divine nature. He's saying, come to me, right? I, I, I come to you with open arms. Do not be afraid. And that's why the incarnation, when Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, is compared to a wedding. Mary's womb is referred to by the early fathers of the church as a marriage bed. God wedding himself to the human race. Permanently. It's a permanent union. I mentioned Jesus didn't cast off his human body after the resurrection. He still has it. It's a permanent union of love because God is so much in love with us, not just the human race in general, which he is, but you, 
You individually, he has loved you from all eternity and wants nothing more than that eternal union of love with you forever. And that's why when you read the Gospels, when you read the book of Revelation, heaven is the eternal wedding banquet. It's this just endless celebration of, of love. God who loves us so much is now united with us forever, with the saints forever. And we do well in this season of Advent. This is the shortest possible Advent we can have. Christmas is on a Monday. So the fourth Sunday of Advent, the fourth week of Advent is, is one day. And then it's Christmas. So so it, we often joke, and at least priests joke, like, <laughs> I'm sure we all joke about this. Um, you know, Lent seems endless, and Advent seems like the blink of an eye. Even even more so this year. Like, it's a, it's a really, really, it's the shortest possible Advent. But I would encourage us to find some time in the midst of all these preparations to prepare ourselves, perhaps now in a richer way, for what this Feast of Christmas not just is about, but challenge us, challenges us to believe and live out. And I would conclude these remarks by maybe now coming into Advent proper and saying that Advent sometimes gets short shrift. It's not just about getting ready for Christmas in an in everyday practical way, right? Decorating the house and all that, but also spiritually getting ready for this feast day itself. It also calls us to prepare for not just the first coming of Christ, but for his second coming, his coming in glory. When the king returns, when we meet him, that's what we're really called to reflect on for that encounter, for that union. And there's a shift in Advent. The first part of Advent is, is on that cosmic return of the king. Then the last eight days of Advent, everything, everything shifts. Now we prepare intensely from the universal to the particular. From the cosmic return of the universal king who will come in glory to judge the living and the dead to going back to when he came first in this very specific way as a baby born on one night in one manger to one mother in one small town. And that octave, those eight days are always so important. The two great feasts of the church year have octaves on either side. In Lent, we have Holy Week before Easter, and then Easter is an eight-day celebration. That's why an octave is important. Octave means eight, eight days. It's the first day and the eighth day. It's, it's the endless week, the endless day of eternity. For Christmas, we have the eight days before Christmas and then the eight days following, which culminates on January 1st. That's why it's New Year's Day. It comes from the Catholic Church. It's the day following Jewish law that Jesus was taken to the temple given his name, and circumcised. The most important thing for a Jewish male to undergo. It's the first drops of blood that Jesus Christ shed in his work of redemption. Again, foreshadowing his passion. Everything points to the cross. But the church commemorates, and this is what I'll finish with, 
the church commemorates those eight days leading up to Christmas with this specific focus. And in those eight days, she takes an ancient title given to the Messiah from the Old Testament. And they're called the O Antiphons. They're prayed every evening by priests and religious. The prayers that we are required to say every day. Each evening, one of these titles is given to Jesus. All right? Starting on December 17th, we have O Sapientia, wisdom. I know most of you can't see this, but pretend that you can. All right? <laughs> Next day, O Adonai, Lord. There's a, long, there's a longer prayer accompanying each of these, but this is how each one begins. O Rodix Jesse, root of Jesse. O Clavis David, he of David. Teacher and me. O Orients, East, Dawn, the Rising Sun. O Rex Gentium, King of the Nations. O Emmanuel. So the last one is the evening of December 23rd. The next evening is December 24th, Christmas Eve. And from our Jewish roots, we know that we begin a feast on the evening before, right? Easter Vigil, where we start saying Alleluia again, okay? So here's what's really cool, all right? I love this. I hope you do too. <laughs> here's here's e the evening, Christmas Eve, right, is where Christmas begins, okay? If we go back from here, take each letter. Okay, what do we get? Emmanuel, Rex Gentium, Orians, Flavis, Rodix, Adonai, Sapientia, Aerocross. You know what that means in Latin? Tomorrow I'll be here. Tomorrow I'll be here. The church is getting us ready, literally, literally, like by the letters themselves, for the advent, the arrival of Jesus. Tomorrow I will be here. And that's such a powerful reminder to us for our encounter with Jesus, for his arrival into our calendar, but also, and far more importantly, into our souls, because this is the key. Tomorrow I'll be here, not just on December 25th, right? But for that moment when we meet Jesus himself, when the king returns, when we encounter him face to face at the end of our lives, we know not the day nor the hour, but we pray that if we imitate him, if we follow that baby to the end, for the reason he was born, then we will be ready to encounter him. We will be ready to be born into eternal life. That will be our true birthday. And we'll be able to celebrate his birth all the more richer as a result. So I hope that's a little something to chew on, 
and take away um it's probably a lot of arcane trivia to throw out at you but um i do hope there's there's something there that uh you didn't know before and maybe find worthwhile to pray and think about and um thanks for your attention